0: Companies have viewed themselves as overstored and closed stores as a result.
1: Shell has deepened the reduction in emissions intensity that they are targeting.
2: Heavy duty truck recovered 60% young year growth.
1: How quickly
3: will the world get back to normal? And just how normal will that be for companies and their employees? In this podcast, we'll try to get to the bottom of those questions and more. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is the Fidelity Analyst Survey, where we pull together the latest reports from nearly 150 company analysts around the world to find out how business is coping with a COVID-19 pandemic across all regions and sectors. Joining me today to explain our analyst forecasts are Global Head of Research for Fixed Income, Marty Dropkin, Director, Global Research for Equities, Fiona O'Neill, and the editor of the survey, George Watson. Thank you all for joining me. Hi, Richard. Hi, Richard. We're recording this podcast just as the US and most of Europe, the UK included, reopen for business with varying degrees of confidence accompanied by new volatility in markets. It's a confusing picture, so we've asked our analysts to give us their impressions based on the thousand conversations they've had with company managers over the past month. George, you've been going over the results of this survey. What we want to know from the team is when do they think life will be back
4: to normal? This month, we asked the analysts a number of questions designed to get to the bottom of exactly what sort of shape the recovery would take. Now, we've all heard talk of V shapes and U shapes, even bathtubs. But I think what those don't really give you is a quantitative idea of how much longer a bathtub is compared to a U, for example. I like like the analogy. Thank you. Um, So this month, we asked the analysts um, how many months before their companies got back to levels of activity that were no longer impaired by ongoing COVID disruption. And what we found was that the global average is about 10 months. And I think this this sort of fits intuitively. I don't think that would be a huge surprise to many people. So 10 months from now, so April next year, that's when we should see things recover. Yes, on a very broad level, though. So that's the global average. In amongst that, obviously, there's dispersion between the sectors and the regions. And so, for example, healthcare and IT, they're getting back to business much sooner in six or seven months, whereas things such as energy and financials taking quite a bit longer, so more like 14 months. Oh, thanks, George. Now, Fiona, you've been talking to um, analysts about these
3: results. So what details have they been giving you? What, what sort of explanations around those those timings and the, and the disparities?
5: On the energy front, I think the 14 months that we're expecting is a reflection, not necessarily of the today, much more of just how bad things got In March and April. April was very much the nadir of the oil price, it was the nadir of demand. Obviously, what we talked about um, with the last analyst survey, and again is a theme that's come up this time, is that the lockdowns are easing a little bit quicker than we had initially feared, and therefore the demand is coming back. As a consequence, you've also seen the oil price come back. That said, the oil industry is very much long cycle in terms of the nature of its business. You can't just turn the taps on and off. And so the mood on the ground, according to our analysts who are talking to the companies, is that actually it's still just as sober as it was a month ago. So yes, things are better. We're no longer in that nadir that we were in March and April, but it's going to take 14 months for us to get back to pre-COVID levels. On financials, I think the key thing there is that it should be no surprise to anybody that government schemes will run out at some stage. And then we're going to be very reliant on the banks and how they're going to cope with things like bad loans. And so I think the 14-month expectation that our analysts are suggesting is a reflection of their concern that the banks may just be kicking the can down the road and that there's not going to be, as George said, a sharp recovery in that particular sector.
3: Now, Marty, dispersion seems to be um, the theme here. It's, in fact, it was a theme um, last month when we were talking about a clear dispersion between companies and their performance. Is that still the case to the same degree or is there some uniformity beginning to uh, to emerge?
6: I, I think it was the case last month and dispersion of output from the analyst is still the case this month. Uh, it's actually one of the the overwhelming themes that I saw in the survey, not just for this question around when will companies start to recover, but for other questions as well that, that we'll probably cover. And, you know, it's not just dispersion across sectors, as Fiona and George just highlighted, it's also dispersion across geographies. So we're seeing an expectation that China will recover in six months, whereas uh, EMEA and LATAM is, is much further out, more like 14 or 15 months. But there's also dispersion within sectors and within geographies. So our own analysts are saying that different companies might recover at different times. And it really leads to that idea that we have to kind of dig deep within sectors, within geographies to find the winners. And just on detail, actually, I want to come
3: to George on this, because um, can you tell us, George, the the, the survey closed... Um, last week, uh, didn't it? And I think it wouldn't have captured the um, the new outbreaks of COVID nineteen in China.
4: That's right. The survey closed uh, in the morning UK time on the Thursday, and as far as I know, that the recent outbreaks in Beijing happened over the weekend. So we do need to add in that caveat that certainly those sorts of fears won't be reflected in the survey results. Nevertheless, China
3: has definitely been leading, as as Marty talked about, and a little bit of detail there about uh, just under six months
4: to return to stability. But within the sectors in China, uh, there were some surprises there, weren't there? There were a number of analysts who said that activity is already back to normal. And certainly there were several Chinese industrial analysts um, saying that their sectors were back to normal already. Okay, well, we were a bit surprised by that result. It's so strong. So let's hear from one of our
3: analysts on the ground in Shanghai. We're going to hear from uh, Sherry Chin, who covers the auto sector, where a specific type of vehicle has had a rather telling performance.
2: There are some subsectors that recovered quite well in my coverage. For example, heavy-duty truck recovered 60% young year growth. The reason for the strong performance in the first four months of this year is really a logistic truck because the China government cut the toll road collection um, after COVID-19 in order to lower the burden for the um, transportation companies. But since May, we have observed very strong pickup in construction-related heavy-duty truck as well. It's really the strong monetary policy and infrastructure stimulus from the government that support the strong purchase of the heavy duty truck used in the construction area. My discussion with components company, which usually leads the industry by one to two months, shows that the industry production in June is quite full. Um, So I think the heavy duty truck industry will perform quite flattish month on month and year on year number could be quite good in June as well.
3: So some positive comments uh, from Cherry Chin on the recovery of China's uh, industry driven by construction. Now, she also watches the passenger vehicle market in China, which has bounced back, although she says that the sustainability of that recovery is less certain. Now, um, Fiona, that divergence again, um, that I- indicates that it's China's domestic sectors, um, perhaps, that are looking better, whilst those sectors that trade with the rest of the world, like the automotive manufacturers, um, they're, uh, they're yet to recover for, I suppose, obvious reasons.
5: Yeah, you can't see China in isolation. So what she has highlighted is that domestically things are looking much better in China. That's to be expected. They appear to have come out pending uh, what happens in Beijing and whether there's a second wave. China does seem to have come out of this crisis before the rest of the world. And so it's only natural that I think we've seen a pickup and an improvement there. But China sustaining that improvement is very much going to be dependent upon what goes on in the rest of the world, precisely because, as she highlighted, so many of the industries are dependent on exports to the rest of the world.
3: Well, Marty, um, you know, Phineas talked there about the second wave um, emerging in China as um, reports come out of new COVID cases across Beijing. Are companies, they're better
6: prepared to manage the virus now? To a degree they are, but the, the uncertainty associated with the virus still exists. And, and I think that's the key thing to focus on here, which is that uh, you know, we don't know in China, we don't know in the rest of the world where there will be second, third, fourth waves. We don't know how big those waves are going to be. And I think everybody's antenna are just up that much more. There's a bit of nervousness within our analyst community. There's a bit of optimism. And I think it's trying to balance those two really that becomes that becomes the focus. And, you know, the backdrop, of course, with all of this is central bank activity that continues to kind of drive things forward. And so I think for our analysts, when we think about fundamentals of companies, it's focusing on those sectors that will not have that much of a liquidity issue, where that central bank activity will keep spurring things on.
5: And if I may, I think, I think the point is that it's still just too early to judge the magnitude and the speed of the recovery. Undoubtedly, there's a recovery going on. And I think that's linked to executives being more comfortable, um, simply because previously they were staring into the abyss. And actually, things have turned out to be not quite as bad. And so I think it's because of that that we're not feeling as negative as we were. But to Marty's point, pervading all of this is a sense of the unknown and a sense of uncertainty.
3: Well, uh, analysts have given us some certainty, perhaps, um, about this 10-month wait until disruption ends at the global level, at least, and business stabilises. George, um, what will that new normal look like? Because you, you asked the analysts how this level of activity
4: will compare to the 2019 levels. This next question was very much a recognition of the fact that some of our analysts, for instance, who cover airlines and cruise ships, You know, their sectors may never look the same. And so asking them, when are you getting back to 2019, just straight out, is is perhaps not the right question. So we asked them, how will this level of stabilisation post-COVID compare to 2019, understanding that for some sectors that will be, you know, probably above that and some it'll be below. And the global average for that came in at 3% below but again, I think the really interesting bit is, is in the details. So, for instance, Europe and North American analysts both said that it would take about 10 months to get past COVID. But this next question shows that Europe analysts think that that level of stabilisation will be over 4% below where it was in 2019. Whereas for North America, it'll only be just over 2% below. So much deeper scarring in Europe than, than in the US. Yes, that's right. Um, for instance there's there's lots of those sorts of stories within the regions and sectors, you know, I don't think it's going to surprise anyone to know that China is going to come out of this fastest and shallowest is that the right term, but you know, it will be closer to 2019 levels when it does come out of it. And again, EMEA and Latin America region that'll be, uh, you know, significantly below uh, where it was in 2019, and just to sort of um, finish this little sequence of, of of numbers, where they're
3: estimating the duration and the and the impact of, um, of of the crisis, how long before activity reaches the levels it was last year?
4: So, for all sectors and regions, we are looking at by the end of next year is what our analysts have told us. So, I think again that that may not be hugely surprising, but I think you know that's quite a quite a reassuring factor as well. I'm um, still quite a, a hit.
3: But Fiona, those results aren't quite as bad as we feared a month or two ago. Although you've, you've mentioned second waves, which may or may not um, uh, come. But this does seem to be a, a bit of a positive trend that things are healing faster than uh, than we might have thought. Shorter bathtubs, as George might put it.
5: <laughs> yeah. Look, I think I go back to um, dwelling, if I may, for a moment on the down three percent at the global aggregate level that George has talked about, that the, the level of activity stabilizing at that is very much consistent with all of the bottom up fundamental financial modelling that our analysts are doing matches exactly, and that is based on those detailed conversations with the companies. So, to your next point, of course, then there's dispersion within the sectors. And I think looking at the sectors really helps us understand where that down 3% comes from. And, you know, we've already talked about energy. Energy is one of the key sectors where it is going to take a lot longer, uh, as we've talked about, to come back to pre-COVID levels. On the other end of the extreme, we've obviously got the healthcare and the IT, but we've also got consumer discretionary. Um, And that is a function of the lockdowns having started to ease much earlier than I think some of us were fearing just one or two months ago. What isn't clear is the magnitude of that recovery in consumer discretionary. Is the consumer discretionary recovery that we're seeing at the moment a function of pent-up demand as we come out of lockdown? Is it going to be sustainable, particularly In a world where potentially you've got a lot more people unemployed, you've got a lot more people who are facing wage cuts, a lot more people with less disposable impact. And I think that's a big unknown.
3: Well, actually, thank you for um, bringing up those points, because there were some really interesting findings um, in the survey on on that topic. It's not going to be a very easy journey getting back to to normal. Uh, We're going to hear from one of the analysts now, um, Harriet Wildgoose, who covers North America retail staples and consumer discretionary that you you just referred to.
0: The sentiment in consumer discretionary has improved sequentially as Non-essential retailers have been reopening with higher levels of productivity than, than perhaps was expected. I think the outlook is highly uncertain though. Within my coverage so far, there have been instances of companies either looking to reduce store numbers or looking to lay off employees as a result of COVID. The move online company dependent Results perhaps in more store closures, but it depends how companies are choosing to fulfill those orders. Um, so for example, some companies are pushing a more omni-channel pickup in store, and in that instance, labor might not be as affected, but there have certainly been uh, indications where companies have viewed themselves as overstored and closed stores as a result and in which case you would see labor reductions.
3: That's a pattern that's being repeated all over the place. That's Harriet Wildgoose on the outlook for jobs in the U.S. consumer discretionary sector. Now, George, um, what are the rest of the analysts um, saying on this particular point about jobs?
4: The global average at the moment is looking like about a third of analysts are saying their companies will permanently reduce the workforces, um, with probably another third or so saying that they will temporarily reduce the workforce. Interesting enough, the regional split is, is sort of much higher in North America for permanent job losses. Nearly half of analysts there say permanent job losses. And again, in Europe as well, it's about 40% or so of analysts. Um, whereas regions such as China, Japan and Asia Pacific um, are much lower than that. Uh, and just give me a figure. What's What does much lower mean in China? So 5% of our China analysts. And what
3: are the worst hit sectors within that picture?
4: The worst hit sectors, as we've spoken about before, energy, industrials uh, and consumer discretionary. Okay, and I've just got here
3: 64% of analysts in covering energy think that their companies are going to be um, uh, losing
4: staff. And what about uh, wages? So I think the picture on wages is looking a little bit more bullish. Now, we, we put this question in because we'd heard anecdotally from a few of our analysts in sectors that were quite heavily impacted by the coronavirus that wages might be falling permanently in their sectors as a result of the coronavirus. And so we wanted to see if this trend was going to be replicated throughout different sectors. And again, it's trying to get a handle on how this is going to affect consumption. But actually, the results came back that many sectors and regions were going to see temporary reductions in wages. But actually, the permanent reduction in wages, it, it's less than 10% of analysts globally. So really, I think that's not not something that we need to be worried about at this stage. Well, unless it's you that's being
3: impacted, of course. But I take your point about the proportion. Fiona, More job losses are obviously not a good sign. At least wages seem to be holding steady. But the big question about these changes that George has just outlined is how that uh, feeds into um, consumption, consumer spending.
5: Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons that we have a question mark over the size of the magnitude of the recovery in the consumer discretionary spending. Consumer discretionary as we know it, but I think consumer discretionary is so much broader. It's also things like the automotive sector. And by the way, it's also um, so-called consumer staples companies. We, it's so easy to think that consumer staples companies have benefited from this crisis. Certainly, the food retailers have seen a, a huge spike in demand. But things like beverages have been massively impacted by the closure of pubs and restaurants and the question to which that's going to come back. Even when lockdown is eased, are people going to have the money in their pockets to go and spend? Tobacco is another sector. You know, are we going to see down trading again as a result of people having less money in their pockets? So I think the implications of the, the size of the consumer wallet are really going to be far-reaching.
3: OK, and Marty, on consumers, um, obviously all eyes on America. How do you read the signals from there? There's an awful lot going on in the States at the moment.
6: Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on. And, and I think one of the things that jumped out at me from what George and Fiona just talked about, particularly if we look at headcount and wages and we look at North America, we've got a situation where we've got a larger expectation of a reduction in headcount than we do on wages. And so there's a little bit of an imbalance there. I think that could just be a temporary impact, but it also could be something to really pay attention to as we kind of think about the levers that that companies have and the levers that they might be able to pull over over time. But to circle back to your question, Richard, clearly all eyes on, on the election in November, companies will likely hold off on making any big decisions because a change in, in administration could mean a fairly significant change in policy. You know, some of, some of the fiscal initiatives that the government has, has uh, embarked upon over the last few years, I wouldn't say would come to a screeching halt, but could tilt in a different direction if, if we were to see Joe Biden become president. So I think, I think a lot of companies are, are going to be looking at November and thinking, do we want to make any big shifts now, Um, with all that uncertainty ahead of them.
3: Presumably, um, a Joe Biden presidency would also affect uh, sustainable investing and the the environment in the US um, around that environment in in the other way, sorry. Um, Now, companies have been quick to nail their colours to the ESG mask as the pandemic has
4: unfolded. And our latest survey um, indicates this isn't a passing fad, uh, George. So that's right. So around 70% of analysts said the majority of these social changes are going to stick for good. And that comes at a bit of a cost. Are they happy to bear that? Yeah, this is a really interesting result, actually. So only 15% of our analysts say that their companies will not be willing to pursue a sustainable agenda at some cost to earnings. So that really is, it's hitting the bottom line. That is a shift from shareholder
3: capitalism, uh, in a sense, to stakeholder capitalism. This, This really is, it seems to me, quite a significant finding this time. Fiona, would you agree?
5: Yeah, I think it is, and if I can just pull out one sector as an example and draw the link between what we were talking about in terms of wages and the S of the E S and G. Um, if you think about consumer staples, many of the food retailers through the crisis have actually had to staff up to cope with the demand spike that they faced, and yet they don't want to be seen to be banking too much profit. And so, actually, when we look at the question of uh, what our analysts answered in terms of expectations on wages. In that space in particular, we're actually expecting short term the wages to go up, which I think, you know, really underscores the fact that companies are thinking about the S so much more than they were pre-crisis and the fact that they are acutely aware of the perceptions of their behaviour.
3: So perceptions are driving things as well. Is it to do with the good of their staff? I mean, why else um, would they be putting wages up?
5: come back to I think it's that they don't you know they have to be extremely careful to not be seen by governments by shareholders by the public as well as by their employees they have to be seen to be not profiteering from the crisis
3: well this commitment to broader stakeholders is even accelerating in the big energy companies who knew Um, here's analyst and portfolio manager Tom Robinson
1: They're doing two things, really, the companies in in the energy sector. The immediate response in terms of ESG was really on the S side of things. So, for example, BP supplying free fuel to air ambulances in the UK. You even even had um, Total, the French company, providing fuel vouchers to French hospitals so they could distribute them to medical workers and so on and so forth. And then there's a longer-term part to it as well, which is more on the E, on the emissions side of things. And that is really the, the extent of the, the shorter-term damage to demand for mobility, which feeds into oil demand primarily. Could that be something that is more longer-lasting? What that has fed through to is that some companies, it's emboldening their lower-carbon strategies. Total, for example, introduced... An emissions target, so that is to reduce Scope 3 emissions. So that's not only the emissions that they produce in their operations, it's the emissions all the way down the value chain that you and I may use when we drive our cars or power our homes. Shell has deepened the reduction in emissions intensity um, that they are targeting. I think this is a, an acceleration of strategies that were already in place. it remains to be seen whether or not that there is a structural impact on on energy demand. Obviously, in the midst of a crisis, lots of things feel uh, everlasting.
3: Ah, So a slight sceptical note there from uh, from Tom, uh, perhaps. But Marty, um, should investors be worried that so many companies are willing to sacrifice um, earnings? And if you were investing in one of Tom's energy stops, for example, would you want them to be pursuing strategies that aren't their core expertise? They tend to be very good at taking things out of the ground to burn.
6: Well, I, I think what you're seeing is just a shift towards a longer term way of thinking for, for companies, for investors, for, for stakeholders all around. And the COVID crisis has brought that to the forefront more than ever. So the idea that pulling something out of the ground will generate some short-term profits, well, what does that mean for the long-term impact on the environment? What does that mean for the long-term benefit of your stakeholders? how does that impact your own employees that's what the crisis has really brought out and i think that's that's really what companies investors asset owners asset managers are all kind of huddling around and thinking about collectively
3: and what else is feeding into companies esg plans
6: one thing that's very much on on everybody's mind right now is the way employers are thinking about their employees Uh, The recent events in the U.S., uh, particularly if we think about the Black Lives Matter movement um, and some of the incidents that that, uh, we're all very concerned about, have become a rallying call for many companies to just make sure that they're treating their employees fairly and correctly. That's perhaps what we're picking up um, in these permanent
3: changes uh, in the way that companies behave. Well, that brings us to the end of this month's um, Pulse survey. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Uh, if you'd like to see the results in full or read more of the analysis, you can read it all online at fidelityinternational.com. Thank you very much to my guests, Fiona O'Neill, Marty Dropkin and George Watson. Thank you to all our analysts. And the producer was Seb Morton-Clark. But from all of us here, goodbye.